Hello, you're listening to our July 2017 episode of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast from the Institute for Research and Poverty at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Dave Chancellor. In February, Scott Winship, who was a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity at the time, spoke at the Institute for Research and Poverty about the question of whether welfare reform increased the number of people in America living on $2 a day or less. The talk was based on a report he wrote for the Manhattan Institute, responding to Catherine Eden and Luke Schaefer's 2015 book, $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America, which they presented at IRP in late 2015. In the book, Eden and Schaefer argue that dire poverty, marked by incomes of $2 a day or less per person, affects a significant number of households with kids in the United States, and that the number of those households has increased since the welfare reform of the mid-1990s. But Winship says that his view of the evidence shows a different picture. There was a working paper that came out a few years ago, um, which they first made uh, their claim that there were a lot of Americans, uh, a lot of kids getting by on less than $2 a day, um, that that uh, number had gone up quite a bit since uh, 1996, and that it was because of welfare reform. And the, kind of the first time I saw the paper, I just I, I had a gut reaction. We don't have Haitian levels of, of poverty in the United States. We were not Zimbabwe. Um, and so I was just very skeptical from the start, not that we have some very poor people in the country, but, but that it was as many as they were saying, and that and it's gotten worse and that welfare reform uh, led to it. Uh, so I, I was interested in uh, tackling each of those questions. I asked Winship to explain a bit more about $2 a day poverty and the parts of Eden and Schaefer's findings that he objects to. So Eden and Schaefer chose a $2 a day per person poverty line, largely because when development economists and other researchers study poverty in developing countries, that's a standard poverty line that's used. So it was, a, I think it was a good hook for the book. They interviewed in depth about eight families around the country who were clearly living uh, just awful lives. Um, and you can't help but read the book and, and just be crushed. And then they combined that with some survey research uh, where they actually tried to identify people in the survey, um, nationally representative, uh, that, that were living on, on $2 a day or less per person. So they merged these these stories about these eight uh, families with national data, and it's really the it's really the national data that I uh, had objections to. Although Eden and Schaefer readily acknowledge that their measure doesn't include a number of public programs that are targeted at low-income Americans, especially the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP, Winship says that not counting the value of these programs misses a big part of the resource picture for these households. And this, combined with other measurement considerations, results in an overstatement of the number of people living on $2 a day. They're just looking at cash income. Um, and so... It turns out since 1996, the main ways that we've tried to reduce poverty uh, and hardship have involved policies um, that don't get counted uh, as income by their definition. It involves things like food stamps, uh, which is now called the SNAP program, uh, housing subsidies, uh, the earned income tax credit, which is a kind of tax time bonus for working poor families. Um, these are the the programs that have expanded um, health care, you know, Medicaid, uh, and and so if we don't count any of, of, of these programs that were meant to help the poor uh, and which expanded so, uh, so much, 
then what you're really going to catch looking at, at trends in cash poverty is the fact that this one cash program uh, that was welfare um, has has dramatically been reduced. And so in my work, I, I try to show that if you incorporate these um, these other programs, income from these other programs, uh, if you take people who are living together but not married uh, and you combine their incomes, which, which are not combined in uh, the official numbers, if you measure changes in the cost of living uh, in a better way, when you do all of these things, uh, it, it looks much more like a flat trend over time and the levels of people living on $2 a day shrink to you know fewer than one half of 1%. Winship says that the increase that Eden and Schaefer find in $2 a day poverty after welfare reform likely has to do with underreporting of earnings and safety net benefits. It's been pretty well known uh, for a couple of decades, and, and one of the major works in the literature is a, is a book by Kathy Eden, actually, um, uh, from 1997 called Making Ends Meet, where she went out and interviewed women who were receiving welfare benefits or they were low-wage workers. And she uh, started out by asking them about their formal uh, sources of income uh, in the same way that uh, that they would get asked by somebody who was administering a survey. And the responses she got came out to, on average, about four dollars a day per person um, that these families uh, were were said they were getting by on. But then she she continued spending time with them and eventually won their trust, and and they slowly revealed that they had other sources of income. Well, first of all, they had other benefits like food stamps and, and housing subsidies, um, but but most of them also had either you know earnings uh, that they were getting under the table, financial help they were getting from family members or from boyfriends. Some were doing were doing illegal things like selling drugs. Um, but nobody actually was living on on four dollars a day per person. It turns out when you when you took all of that into account, the average the average single mother in her study was getting by on about ten dollars a day per person. Now that's not a lot of money by anybody's definition, um, but it does show that reports of as low as four dollars a day or two dollars a day probably are just unlikely. There's another body of literature that compares survey data to administrative data, so tax records from the IRS or um, earnings records from the Social Security Administration. And you can, you can look at the same people in both, both data sets and, and discover uh, how much of their earnings or income they reported in surveys. And it turns out that especially for, for low-income people, earnings are pretty badly underreported. Public transfers uh, like welfare, like food stamps, um, SSI, which goes to disabled kids, uh, are all pretty badly underreported, and and so that's been that's been well known for quite a while, and and so I try to show in the paper, if you partly correct for some of some of these problems, um, you find much lower levels of of two dollar a day poverty. Winship says he doesn't really have a good way to prove this story of underreporting, but he says there's another way to look at this. What I do do in the paper is I show that if you want to believe those numbers, then it turns out the rise in $2 a day poverty started in the 1970s. Um, and so obviously welfare reform in 1996 or in the early 1990s um, can't be blamed for, for the increase in the 1970s, 1980s. And then I also show that 
uh, if you believe the two dollar a day cash poverty numbers then then that kind of poverty rose among groups that were completely unaffected by welfare reform so groups like elderly people childless households the children of married couples uh, married college graduates if you believe the data experienced an increase in two dollar a day poverty uh, over this period and so I argue that you know even even if you believe uh, those trends are real which I think uh, is really suspect it, it, arguing that welfare reform was was behind the rise for single parents but leaves a huge question mark as to why these other groups also experienced rising two dollar a day poverty Winship says that a major challenge of studying trends in households with very low income has to do with what counts as evidence, because fairly small adjustments in the way that resources and other things are calculated can lead to very large differences in the results. Between all of these non-cash benefits and tax credits, you know, measuring inflation, these are all very, very technical decisions. And it's certainly the case that that we don't do any of these uh, things exactly the right way because they're all very complicated. Things like adjusting for underreporting of benefits. Uh, I, I have uh, some trends in the paper that that attempt to do that using some some data from the Urban Institute. But it's all contestable um, in terms of of how well uh, approximated all of these these things are uh, by the data. To a lesser extent, I think uh, it's contestable, contestable which of these adjustments should be made. And so, it, yeah, it's, it's certainly going to be the case. There's, I think, always going to be room for disagreement among people who believe differently that, for instance, uh, you should, when people have health insurance, that that, that health insurance should be valued as income. Um, that's That sort of ends up being one of the big debates. And, you know, in, in, in the paper, I do the best I can to, to defend the choices I made. Uh, I have a, uh, an appendix devoted to uh, the, the inflation adjustment that I do, which is riveting. Um, I have a, an appendix devoted to uh, valuing healthcare benefits. But in the end, you know, I, I think people have a hard time uh, being persuaded, I think, that what they would prefer uh, might not be the, the way to go. As Winship alludes to, these questions about the legacy of welfare reform aren't just technical, but have important policy implications. So I asked him what he sees as being at stake here. There's talk of, uh, of further reforms to the safety net in Washington. Um, I think conservatives would like to extend what they take to be the lessons of welfare reform and expand work requirements and time limits to other programs like food stamps or, or housing benefits. Liberals, I think, for their part, are very nervous uh, that changes to those programs would would leave big holes in the safety net, and so they're pushing very hard against those sorts of reforms. What they would like to see, I think, is more money devoted to helping welfare recipients develop more work skills and find employment, uh, more money for childcare and things like that. Uh, so, so this book really came out at the start of some of these arguments that that liberals and conservatives were having over welfare reform and was remarkably influential and uh and ultimately that's that's why I decided to you know instead of writing about some other things I could have written about to focus on on this particular topic because I I just felt like if we're going to have a debate about the future of of the safety net it has to be informed by the best evidence and and reliable evidence and uh, and I, I, I think, unfortunately, the evidence in, in the book is flawed enough that it, it, it would result in bad policy if, if we made policy based on it. 
when Chip says he hopes to see more experimentation with the kinds of things that he believes were effective for the welfare reform of 1996. We have pretty weak work requirements in the food stamp program. We have just about no work requirements in uh, our housing benefits program. Uh, Rather than immediately jump into a reform that would make everybody subject to to those work requirements and to time limits, uh, we should experiment at the state level, just like we did in the early 1990s with, with cash welfare. And we may learn that, that it's a terrible idea, um, but we could also learn that uh, people are better off uh, because of these decisions, which is what I believe ultimately happened with welfare reform. Uh, so I'd like to see us do some some experimentation there. That said, it's really important that we exempt a lot of people from uh, work requirements and time limits. Uh, there are people who have just uh, profound challenges to their ability to work, whether that's health problems. You know, I don't think we want to send parents of newborns right into the workforce necessarily. Uh, and the other thing we need to do is is make sure that we support uh, work among low-wage workers with the earned income tax credit and potentially expanding that to to more people. But in the end, I think you know if we don't if we just choose not to do any experimentation, then then we're basically choosing not to create more knowledge uh, about how to help poor people. Thanks to Scott Winship for taking the time to talk to us. If you'd like to learn more about his work on this issue, you can read his full report called Poverty After Welfare Reform on the Manhattan Institute website. This podcast was supported as part of a grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, but its contents don't necessarily represent the views or positions of ASPE or IRP. To catch new episodes of the Poverty Research and Policy Podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. You can also find all of our past episodes on the Institute for Research and Poverty website. Thanks for listening. 